Welcome to episode 10 of Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop RPGs. This episode is about decolonizing Dungeons and Dragons and was inspired by a panel of the same name at Emerald City Comic Con. First of all, what does it mean to decolonize D&D or any game? We start off answering these questions with the panel organizer and moderator, Tristan Tarwater. Then we'll delve deeper on decolonization and RPG safety tools with Kiana Shaw. Finally, we hear from Jessica Ross in an audio essay with decolonizing tips that you can use right away. But first, Behold Her could not bring you awesome audio stories and essays without our wonderful sponsors. Jessica's audio essay is sponsored by Cobalt Press. Although you might know them for their Creature Codex or Tome of Beasts, my personal favorite Cobalt Press content is their Warlock booklets, recent issues of which have featured work by some awesome women creators like Kelly Pollock, Ashley Warren, Hannah Rose... Find digital issues of Warlock on koboldpress.com or support their Patreon. Just $5 a month gets you a snazzy little print booklet in the mail. Tristan Tarwater is an author of novels, comics, and RPG bits and uses the pronouns they, them. Tristan invited me to their panel about decolonizing Dungeons & Dragons during Emerald City Comic Con. It's not a topic I'd thought about much, at least not in a focused way, a way that put definitive words to this uneasy feeling that classic tabletop RPG settings sometimes stirred up. Tristan's panel opened my mind to what role-playing games could be. Tristan, thank you so much for coming on to Behold Her. I'm so excited to chat with you. You, my friend, are actually the inspiration for this episode. Um, you had invited me and a number of our other friends and awesome peers in the community to go on a panel called Decolonizing Dungeons & Dragons at Emerald City Comic Con. Yeah. For folks who didn't have the pleasure of sitting in on that panel or reading about it immediately after, uh, can you give an idea of, I guess, what's a synopsis of what the panel was meant to accomplish? So the panel Decolonizing Dungeons and Dragons was meant to go a little bit beyond just talking about diversity in tabletop role-playing games. I think there's a lot of focus diversity and getting different people at the table but you can have different people at the table but still kind of uh, be set in the same kinds of rules and this culture that we have that's still kind of is I mean to put it short like is is full of like oppression basically mm-hmm. um, and still has kind of like hierarchy within it. And so I wanted to do decolonizing Dungeons and Dragons because once you get different people at the table, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, and we still have to challenge ourselves. It's still very obvious that things like colonization, conquest is still very much a part of fantasy role-playing games. And it's still very much a part of Dungeons and Dragons, even in fifth edition, which is super great. And I just wanted to talk about that. Just not only like once you've got people there, how to make it more welcoming because an invite is great, but not being constantly reminded that your culture treats you like a second class citizen Mm -hmm. (laughs) is really nice when you're trying to pretend that you have uh, power and agency and that you can like help people out. I want to dig into sort of where you got the inspiration to focus on this topic for the panel, Uh, but to give I guess this discussion, a little bit of context. Can you tell me how you got into tabletop RPGs? If there are particular RPGs that you like to play or that first introduced you to the genre? I really like D&D. I first started playing 3.5 back in about, like in the 2000s, I guess, which doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Let us not <laughs> yeah. talk about the passage of time because I will just spiral. Yeah, it was probably like 2004 or five, And like I had been exposed to Dungeons and Dragons as a concept when I was younger, but I grew up in a really religious household. And so it was definitely in that thing of like, it's evil. And if you play, you'll definitely go to hell. So I didn't play it as a kid, but as I got to be an older person and uh, definitely not religious, my friend who ran a co- who worked at a comic book store saw that I was interested, and my partner, um, who was my boyfriend at the time, had played when he was in 
high school and I wanted to play because I was I was writing a fantasy book and I was talking to my friend about it and he's like you need to play Dungeons and Dragons and he knew somebody who was in the area who would be a DM which is you know what you need and so like we hosted it and it got to be like everyone would come over for D&D I would cook dinner we would eat food and have a good time and play Dungeons and Dragons and like I remember playing and the first or the first character I played was a half elf and I remember reading the entry for it and being kind of like huh okay just reading the entries on the races uh, the fantasy races was kind of like okay this is kind of weird but you know I played and I had a good time with my friends and I just kept playing kept reading and kept writing my own uh, fantasy stuff because I write I write fiction And trying to write the kind of stuff where, like, things, you know, they don't have the history that we do. And so the kinds of things that I deal with on a daily basis, these characters wouldn't necessarily have to deal with, which is in and of itself a kind of fantasy, like not having to deal with the history of, you know, slavery or diasporic populations that have to leave because of things that happen in colonies and things like that. I'm wondering then, like, so through your years of playing Dungeons and Dragons, were there particular experiences that kind of led you to wanting to discuss this for the panel? I know you mentioned, for instance, the entries about the various races for Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know that I've had specific experiences in game, but I've definitely had them in my real life. I'm a I'm a mixed race person. Um, I'm a person of color. My background is my mom is Puerto Rican, which is in and of itself like really mixed. And my father is black. And as like a really obvious person of color, like living in New York, living in the South, living on the West Coast, it just comes up. You know what I mean? Like race comes up, culture comes up you get to be eventually like really aware of the differences between race and culture, what people think of you, things like that. Reading fantasy books, reading Dungeons and Dragon books, and seeing how those kinds of things are handled and learning more over the years about things like when I was in high school, I didn't have words like colonialism or microaggression and things like that. I was just a very stressed out teenager, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> not really, like knowing something was wrong, and but not having the vocabulary for it, being able to name it as an adult, uh, you kind of, it verifies that you're not just like cuckoo bananas. And it is around. And especially in D&D, like the whole idea of evil races mm-hmm. in and of itself is problematic especially when you are from race or culture that has been described in ways that some of the monsters are described that's kind of stressful you know what i mean um and also seeing uh the word like conquest always being spun like in a positive way or being seen as a positive thing when it's done by humans but when it's done by other races that are not like the default setting then it's seen as bad or evil. You know what I mean? Like in the 5E entry for humans, I think like the word conquest is used at least, it's used at least two times in like the first two entries in like a positive way. It's like, this is what's cool about humans. They're always taking over stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, and it's... I'm like, I'm pausing because it's like, it's like, my gut reaction is like, that's bad. And I know some people would like, you know, it's so, it's so glorious. You know what I mean? It gives people like adventure um, to go to like new places, new places, like quote unquote. But um, the whole idea of like colonialism and also like the frontier exploration, like seeing what's there and then codifying it as monstrous and something that has to be subdued. Is, is something that like I've seen happen in real life. And so I kind of like cringe when I see it in, you know, fantasy tabletop games. And I and I cringe too when people just kind of, they go along with it. And like every monster, every race is just, you know, we call it like, it's just a pinata that money and XP falls out of. <sighs> and sometimes it feels like as 
you know, a person of color or a person in a certain community or part of a culture, like that's how people like see you. Like you're just an NPC that doesn't matter or you're going to be like the only person of your race or background that someone's going to meet. And so you have to, you have to set like a good example. You have to be on your best behavior because you don't know if this person's going to go off and meet someone else similar to you and then go off of how, how they interacted with you and treat that person the same way. You said something that really resonated with me, which was that when you were younger, you didn't necessarily have words to capture things that you were experiencing, things that you felt, and uh, that as an adult, learning those words, and I think you said um, that you realize you're not cuckoo bananas, uh, but that, yeah. that, that's so important, actually, uh, having words to kind of capture your experiences, make them real, and then also have a word where people who share your experiences, like you can instantly relate because you're using the same language. Yeah, definitely. Like I have a lot of messages with my friends from high school being like, remember in high school when like this happens and like we felt like something was wrong, but like we couldn't put our like our finger on it. Like, isn't this what happened? We're all just kind of like validating ourselves so we can kind of get past the stuff that we went through back in the day. And it's very kind of like, I don't want to say it's like a, like a coven of people who all believe each other and that being really important, but that's kind of what happens. Like us believing each other back in the day was it important now that we're older and like pointing it out it's just given us back like more power basically in our lives and the, our narratives and like how we see ourselves and how we act in the world 100 percent, like you said it's validating and that's totally important speaking on language and words i feel like we've started touching on this already but i want to make sure we chat about it when we say decolonizing there might be some folks who don't fully understand what that specifically means. Uh, so for you, Tristan, what do you mean when you say you want to decolonize Dungeons and Dragons? First, like I kind of said before, I want it, it's that second step after you di- diversify Dungeons and Dragons. There's still a lot of panels and things that are on like this 101 kind of base level how to get people to the table. But again, decolonizing is kind of the second step, like the 200 level thing that you have to do. And when I talk about decolonizing, I think especially for Americans here, we like we understand what colonization is. It was in the context of America, it was, you know, Europeans coming over here, quote unquote, like discovering stuff and bringing their ideas, their morals, their structures to the Americas in a way and like recreating them in a way to like subjugate and oppress uh, indigenous people who are already here and African people who were brought here against their will. Um, Colonization has to do with, it has to do with conquest. It has to do with like hierarchy of, of things like skin color, racial traits, it has to do with things like changing what people eat, what they see is good. And it's just, it's taking over. It's, it's, it's subjugation and someone is definitely on the bottom. I think about like, you know, in the, in the Caribbean, things that happens there, like things with like the Casta system when the Spanish were there and bringing like uh, Catholicism and changing the foods that people ate in their practices um, for the benefit of the colonizer. It also like has to do with like race. It has to do with gender because a lot of different like they don't just like adhere to binary gender roles or even just like the existence of two genders and things like that. And so trying to kind of question, is this oppressive? Like, is this putting people on top of each other for basically like greed is what it is, even if it's masked in like religion or um, trying to like civilize people. And the end of the day is like, you know, someone's got to grip more coin than somebody else. Someone is more likely to be alive at the end of the day than somebody else. Because with colonization comes, you know, it com- comes poverty, death, things like that. Hearing all of that, 
You'll see. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big thing. It's, kind of like, it's, it's real yeah. heavy and it's like, and then you, no. <laughs> it's like, so you, it's almost like on one hand, you understand why it's, the focus has kind of been on diversity 101. Cause that seems like that in itself is like a, oh, it's own little complex thing. But then the idea of having to decolonize things that are ingrained in like our country's own history. So there's, there's all these like subconscious aspects to it. Like things are really, really ingrained, entrenched. So how do you begin to change that? And that actually reminds me a bit of how, when we were discussing the panel online afterward, a lot of folks' reactions were, well, it sounds like you just don't like Dungeons and Dragons or stuff like, um, like you'd mentioned uh, the idea of like conquest uh, being such yeah. a key part of D&D as most people know it and folks saying, well, if you take that away, it's not really Dungeons and Dragons anymore. You should just make your own game if you don't like D&D. Uh, so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and like how do you take the idea of conquest and the, this frontier away from adventuring and, and still have it be D? the idea of exploration in and of itself is not wrong you know what i mean and of course i mean i'm not gonna get into like the morality of war because that's too big to be honest i'm not like an expert <laughs> on war or anything like that. But for people who are like, if there's, you know, if if someone's not taking over somebody, then it's not Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know. I just, I don't, there are so many different kinds of conflict that we have in our lives. The idea that they're, the only kind of conflict is like a winner loser type things. And I'm not saying that you can't ever just like have to throw down in D&D, I just find it troubling when you're like, when when you come across players who are like, oh, it's a bunch of lizard folk, let's kill them. Because why, you know, <laughs> things like alignment and that is all really interesting. And there's definitely going to be like bad things in the world. But the fact, I mean, D&D is, you know, it's a, it's a D20 system with you know skills and you have weapons and you have abilities but it doesn't necessarily have to be this really black and white all lizard folk are bad all orcs are bad all this all people like this are like that the only type of uh it's always like kings and stuff like that and falling back on this like european kind of feudal system where the adventurers are exceptional which is important because apparently you get bit by a rat and you die even when you're a super exceptional person (laughs) (laughs) and for people who are like take if you don't want conquest in DD, like don't play i'm like well just don't play at my table if you want to play games where ten thousand people are automatically bad because they're lizards fine i just don't want to play with you because then, you know, I worry about how you see other people. Like, honestly, like everyone in everyone in like this country, um, we're all born into like this water that is is oppressive by nature. We all have our work to do where we kind of have to undo how we see people, um, how we see different aspects of people. I like the system of Dungeons and Dragons. I like fantasy because anything, anything could happen. I love freaking flaming sphere. Like I love rolling a freaking ball of fire into somebody because they're a jerk, but I'm not going to like roll a ball of fire into someone just because they're an orc because they're evil. You know what I mean? And so like using it as a way to like think about, you know, morality and cultures and how to interact and stuff like that, I think is useful. I oh, I think it's interest more interesting yeah. too. I love when D&D isn't just about, I don't know, grinding monsters, but you're making moral choices. You're trying to suss out the truth. Yeah. And I think the whole like, I mean, I've been part of the gaming community for a bit. The whole like make your own thing is just like, no, like, because even if you do make your own, then they're going to complain that you freaking made it <laughs> is never good enough. If like, that's the whole thing is, like that happens. Like I've seen that happen. People go off and they make their thing and they get, and they get, I'm going to say crapped on for it because it, ex- 
you know, it excludes somebody or it's it's not good. There's like this this purism that something has to be or if someone makes their own modules. You know what I mean? It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I don't really want someone to like you don't have to play with me, but I'm going to I'm going to play the way that I want and I don't have to like to pl- the way that you play. Yeah. D&D is like you said, it's a system. It's also a community. So just because yeah. you don't like one aspect or a, to be fair, more than one aspect, I guess if we're talking about <laughs> decolonizing D&D. Yeah. You don't have to like everything about something to still love it and the hobby and think that there's ways to fix it. Yeah. Like I know Dungeons and Dragons was started on freaking wargaming. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? When I look at D&D and I see the way that it is, it's not like, how did it get like this? You know what I mean? It's like, it's just like in real life when we see stuff on the news that happens that's terrible. And you have these people being like, oh my gosh, why? And I'm like, why do you think? You know what I mean? And so it's really like, I understand why D&D is the way that it is, but that doesn't mean that I have to play it that way. You know what I mean? It's not a mystery, but that's because this is like that doesn't mean that it has to stay like that. And that doesn't mean that the community has to be like yeah, absolutely. that. So would you say, like, on whose shoulders is it to try to facilitate this change? Would you say it's dungeon masters, players, a combination of both? It's a group effort. I think it also goes down to wizards. It comes down to the people who are writing the books. You know, like I said, like in the books itself. And like, like I, you know, fifth edition did a better job than fourth edition as, at being inclusive with this language and fourth edition better than three, five. And, you know, that's where it starts is there, like when the edition comes out. Um, and then it is up to, dungeon. I mean, Dungeon Masters and players, they have to work together. They have to work at the same time. It's also not just up to marginalized people to lead the charge. It's obviously up to allies to speak up when it's right and also to make space for people to speak up and like also the communication at the table. Like I'm seeing things like uh, I was doing a podcast with some friends and like we had a we had like a safe word where if something was making someone feel uncomfortable, we could say, they like they would say it and we would like we would stop recording and talk it out because you don't know what people are bringing to the table necessarily. And you never know what's going to be upsetting to you. You know, that's unfortunately how our, how our brains work. <laughs> like we go through crap, we go through trauma and like, we try to put it away so we could just, you know, make pancakes, go to work. And then like the dungeon master is like, you see a mom like hitting their kid and you're just like, I hate this. Like, I have to stop playing. You know what I mean? It's literally everybody's job. Everybody has a role to play. And a big part of knowing whose turn it is and what they need to do is, is, uh, is communication. There needs to be communication between players and design masters. Companies need to listen to people who are playing. That's what it is. It's a lot of, it's a lot of listening, basically, um, so you've mentioned yeah. you mentioned a couple things in there. So you mentioned safety tools. You mentioned the importance of communication. Are there other like actionable tips you have for listeners who are interested in things that they can do to start decolonizing their home games right now? I think it was Jess and then Amanda like reinforced it. Asking why, asking yourself like why are we doing this? <laughs> like why are we just listening to the king? Like why are we going into this? camp and just raising it to the ground I think that's important I think also like educating yourself just on real life things because that's that's the thing that's super like makes me like oh ho 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 like laugh (laughs) um is that the problems in like role-playing games tabletop comics all of this stuff is not like it didn't like spontaneously show up it came from like our culture that we live in now we came from our history just like dnd started from wargaming which is based on like historical battles and stuff like that you need to educate yourself on like real life 
stuff that is happening. Like you need to read from sources that are not like yourself and your culture and your community. And you got to learn history. I know that seems kind of whack that you got to do homework because you just want to like roll dice. But if you're interested in actually taking oppressive things out of a game, you got to, I mean, you got to learn, you got to do it. I've had to do it. And I'm someone who's part of like a bunch of oppressed backgrounds. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, If I got to do it and someone with privilege, like I'm not going to just let you copy off my work. You got to do it too. Like you need to learn and you need to think about it um, and not just use like your one black friend as your proof that you're not a racist or your one queer friend that you're not homophobic. Uh, That's just not what it is. Like proximity to people different does not make you someone who doesn't oppress. It just means that some people are adjacent to you because honestly, like a change in the culture will affect a change in our media, which is a reflection of our culture. We're just seeing when we're we're playing D&D, when we're watching movies, it's just a mirror that's showing back like what we're doing. So there has to be, again, like it goes, it's, it's, it goes, unfortunately, deeper than just <laughs> taking away, like, you could just say, like, there's no evil races, but actually questioning, like, why, what does the idea come from? And how do you, how can you then make bad characters? Like, what does that mean? Thinking about those types of things away from the gaming table so you can bring it to the gaming table. That's kind of what has to happen. As we wrap up, Tristan, was there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? It's just, it's such a big topic. Yeah. And I feel like this was just like a surface level, like context to this humongous topic that has like history and all like and culture and oh, oh my goodness. I'm not here. I'm not here to like destroy Dungeons and Dragons. People who want to change it. They're not here to destroy it. They're not going to come into your house and like rewrite your books. Like that's not happening, you know, (laughs) but like as you read and as you as it's just always examine the power structures and who has more power in a scenario, like in a combat, you know, it's just like initiative and people's stats, but power is more than just the stats that you have on your paper. And just, that's something that you can just think about. Not only in Dungeons and Dragons, but in your real life. Who actually has power and who's more likely to be believed when they're talking about what happened? If you ask yourself those two questions and you're honest about it, I think you can do a lot of work. You can get a lot of good work done in your games and in your around your gaming table and like in your life. D&D and life advice here. Yes. <laughs> big mom energy <laughs> so if people want to find you on the interwebs uh where can they do that so if they want to find me on twitter which is probably the best place uh i'm at back that elf up and i also have a website which is back where it has uh, my books and it has a sign up like for my newsletter and it's uh, you know comics that i've been in and things like that but mostly, like, on on Twitter, I talk about stuff like this. I retweet people and resources for people. And I try to just, like, get other people's voices uh, heard out there. But, yeah, that's where you can basically find Thank me. Thank you so much for coming on to Beholder, giving this whole episode some context. Um, but also just sharing some really great thoughts so that people can, gosh, play more consciously, thoughtfully, and I guess li- live the same. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I super appreciate it. You can find Kiana Shaw all over the internet doing all sorts of tabletop RPG things. She's a prolific RPG streamer and creator of the Tabletop RPG Safety Toolkit. Kiana, welcome to Behold Her Podcast. You have no way of knowing this, but I have wanted to get you on the podcast I think since the first episode. So I'm so excited you're here to chat with me. Yeah, oh my goodness, that's amazing. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast since 
it became announced as a thing because awesome. So this is kind of just like, woo, getting all of the things together and getting the stars aligned to do this. So yeah, I'm glad we were able to connect. I feel like there are so many different things that you do in the community. I have a lot of different questions for you, but let's start off with how about how did you get into tabletop gaming? So I got into tabletop gaming from watching streams. So I'm part of that generation of uh, role players that got introduced to the concept of D&D via uh, Twitch live streams and all of those shows that were out there about, I say, almost three years now. I kind of stumbled across it via following a bunch of people online that I admired to the Wizards of the Coast Twitch live stream. Uh, and so I started with that and then kind of fell in love with D&D from there. And now we're here. <laughs> yeah, I basically have exactly the same, I guess, like origin story where I'm also accidentally started watching Critical Role uh, and mm -hmm. fell in love with the game uh, through watching people play it. How did you make the transition from watching people play to actually playing? Did you start playing in online games? Did you go into a game store? Yeah, so I kind of poked around to see what was the best way to do it. And most people recommended, oh, try going on Roll20 and finding a game through there. So I actually started with an online game. It didn't last super long just because it was not a very good experience. Um, it was kind of toxic, but it kind of motivated me to try to GM my own games and try to create a better space that way. And so I, I did a home game for about a year or so after that first kind of not great experience. Would you, are you comfortable talking about that a little more? I mean, that oh, is, uh, so like for Beholder, I do often ask, like, what are folks' experiences as women in gaming? And I know in your case, you're so vocal in the community. So what is your experience as like a woman who's sort of outspoken, putting yourself out there and talking about different issues? So essentially, I got into a, a Roll20 game with a bunch of random people from the get-go, even from, they weren't really session zeros, but like, let's hang out and chat and figure out more about each other. There were kind of instances where, you know, I wasn't completely comfortable. I was the only woman or femme presenting person in that group. And it was very clear to me that I was the only woman there. And so it kind of became this thing of where uh, there, were there were kind of misogynistic remarks being made. And none of it was enough to really push me out at first. But it was kind of, you know, not a great, comfortable environment. And then when we got into our first game, our first proper session, there was one player who just kept hitting on me. Um, Lurg, uh, yeah, despite me saying, hey, I'm in a long-term relationship. I'm not interested. I just want to play the game. And then we got to one point where we had a nightmare sequence and we had to describe our character's nightmares. And one of the players thought it was appropriate uh, to use sexual violence as their nightmare thing. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went, nope, nope. I made up an excuse about work and then I left the group forever and it actually it scared me off roll 20 and it scared me off discord because that's where we were communicating for a good few months after that but again it would kind of motivated me because i i really wanted to play but i was like i don't really know how i feel about doing it online anymore and so i convinced a group of my very good friends and their partners to let me run a game for them with having no experience whatsoever so that's what i ended up doing <laughs> First of all, I'm sorry you had such a crappy first experience. That sounds, I mean, you talk about nightmare sequences. That sounds like a nightmare in itself. God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it was this kind of situation. Like now I can talk about it because I'm removed from it. And it's so interesting to see people having much better experiences than I did. And then some, some women, especially women or other marginalized folks, who are just having the same kind of experiences I had. And so it's part of that has motivated a lot of the community work I do and in being outspoken and saying, you know, this isn't cool. This is not right. Like when you get to that point, no D&D &D is better than bad D&D. &D. And, you know, you have to try to create a better space so that people of all walks of life, uh, but especially marginalized folks who haven't had as much of a vocal presence or as much of a 
visible footprint uh, in the community and give them the space to feel like they can be part of this community and be part of the industry and be able to play without having to worry about that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I feel like it takes a certain type of soul to have that sort of experience. And that's your introduction to the game. And then decide, you know what? No, that's not for me. I can make a better experience. And to do that for yourself. And then to also make sure that the game and the community is safer and better for everybody, which I think is a good transition into talking about RPG safety tools, because you have sort of become the expert on tabletop safety tools. Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened, where that started? Yeah, so um, actually uh, a big part of it uh, comes from two major influences uh, in my early uh, online Twitter D&D experience, I guess you could say. So one of them being uh, Misty Vander, who you had uh, a story from on the podcast. Uh, We Um, love Misty. Yeah, Misty's great. She had been an incredible advocate for uh, tabletop safety. And uh, yeah, she and I uh, did a podcast alongside Keely to discuss all sorts of things. And so she was one of those major influences to bring me into talking about safety in games. But also uh, there's a stream group or a channel called Off the Table, uh, which is run by uh, Summer, who is also an amazing person. And they were using safety tools uh, within their own streams and their games. One of them that uh, actually Misty was on. And so I kind of first got introduced to the concept of safety tools in gaming uh, via them, and then doing a lot more research and kind of looking into it a lot of the principles spoke to me as, you know, just trying to make a better space for everybody and making sure that people feel safe and comfortable enough to play so that we can all kind of enjoy this hobby together. So what goes into researching safety tools exactly? Because it feels like it's something that's new. So maybe I'm completely wrong, but I feel like there aren't necessarily like books and studies on them. I mean, enlighten me. Yeah, so it's the it's the interesting thing where we realized how actually impermanent the internet can be. So a lot of these safety tools, yeah, there's there's no formal books or studies on them, uh, but there's, you know, safety tools have been in discussion for many, many years, mostly through internet forums online via LARP groups or RPG groups. So it's, it's not really that much of a new thing. But the thing is, is that these forums get shut down and like, you know, Google Plus being a big example of that, where, you know, there have been all these discussions about safety and safety tools in gaming, but they kind of get lost to the ether until somebody rediscovers them again. And so a lot of the research I've done have been actually following cons. So Breakout Con, um, for example, has a page about the safety tools they use. Uncon or unconventional convention also has kind of a page of these. And so a lot of where I ended up kind of deep delving was just going through those pages, but also going through Twitter and seeing where those conversations are popping up again. Um, It's how I got introduced to Brie Bow, creator of Script Change. And I kind of just followed all of those lines uh, down to where I could reasonably find a source or at least a name to put to uh, these tools that are kind of have been in discussion, have been implemented in games and in systems for a while, uh, but kind of just get lost to not proper archiving or centralization of this type of knowledge. Wow, I'd never thought about that because I guess on one hand, it feels like something that's got on the internet is forever in the Wayback Machine. On the other hand, just like you mentioned, there's no really no easy way for people to learn what all of their options are for safety tools if they're not centralized in one place. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is that like, because of the fact that it's kind of scattered everywhere, it makes it much more difficult to talk about it because the concept of safety or safety tools is often foreign to a lot of RPG gamers, whether that's from their, uh, whether they're new or they're like, they've been playing for decades. It's kind of this interesting thing that it's been talked about in the community, but never recorded or in depth or in a way that it makes it easy for other people to access. Was there anything in your research that surprised you uh, or stood out as some amazing tip that you would have never thought of? 
honestly, it's just it was just the great amount of safety tools that were out there because there's so many of them, and they all approach the needs of people very differently. You know, different people have different experiences and different trauma and different emotional needs. And different safety tools are have been created to help kind of facilitate those different needs. Like when I was creating uh, the TTRPG safety toolkit, a lot of it was just pulling together as many of these common tools as possible to address as many of those needs. And so it was just, I think it was just kind of mind blowing to me to see how much work has already been done. And then I am just here to try to make it as accessible and centralized as possible so that people um, are able to actually use them. <laughs> For folks who aren't familiar with the toolkit, can you give us a taste of like one or two easy to implement tools? So there's a, the toolkit contains a whole bunch of stuff. There's links and documents to other people's compiling work, but I also have the guide, which gives a very quick overview of several different safety tools. And so the one that was on the very original uh, version of it and the one that's on it now would be the X, N, and O cards. These are ways to help define things, a check-in within games to say, is this okay to keep going with? So for example, uh, if something came up in game, which was making me extremely uncomfortable, if somebody had said something or if I said something or something, it's just happening in the game because sometimes games get away from us like that tapping the X card or typing it or whatever says, I'd like to stop and not continue with this particular route we're going. Let's talk about it. And then we can rewind and change it. And then there's stuff. And then the end card is kind of like that we're getting to that point, but maybe we can just slow down. We can put it behind a curtain. So, you know, it's happening, but we're not going to go into detail about it. And then the O card is the, hey, I may look like I'm having a bad time, like I'm crying, I'm freaking out, but actually I really enjoy what we're doing right now. I'm okay. Keep going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that factors into uh, the lines and veils, which is a set of tools that you use before your game, actually, and even during or whatever, which are essentially setting boundaries. So your lines are your hard boundaries. Your This is a hard line. I don't want this content to show up in my game. So for me, sometimes that would be stuff like uh, sexual violence, or sometimes even like homophobia, being a queer person, sometimes I just don't want to deal with homophobia in my fantasy games when I also have to deal with it in my real life. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I say that's a line, that means we don't have it in the game, we don't address it, it doesn't exist uh, within our fictional world and the story we're creating. While a veil is something that can exist, but never in great detail, never with great focus, Again, that idea of putting it behind a curtain or a veil. So on my example would be, I'm very squeamish about eye injuries. I'm okay with them happening. I just don't want every little gory detail about it. Mm-hmm. I would like, you know, that person's eye got injured and we're going to move on from that. <laughs> so yeah, so it's like a soft boundary. It's like, you know, that's okay, but I'd rather, you know, not have to explore it in depth. So those are just a few. And then there's so many more. There's script change, um, which I mentioned by Rebo, which kind of does the same check-ins and boundary setting, but through the lens of, you know, a movie, you know, or directing or stuff like that. So you can rewind, you can pause, you can uh, fast forward all these things and you have like ratings at the beginning. And then I also, there's also included the Luxton technique, which is a very different way of approaching, you know, sensitive topic where you give total fiat control over to the person who would be affected by this content. So they have control over how it goes. So for example, if, you know, we're getting to a point where we're, we're kind of getting into eye injuries, fiat control would be giving over to me where I can, even if it's not my character or if it's not my scene to say, I would like for this to happen. So for example, I would like the eye to be bandaged up and we know it'll be fine. And people accept and address it, keep going with the co- with the content, knowing that, you know, nobody has to explain why. We just all agree, yes, this is, we want to care for you. And we know this is a way that you can help control the narrative in a way that is comfortable for you. So we, uh, we give you the reins to do that. And I love hearing about all of these different methods, because at the end of the day, they're all sort of doing the same thing. But there's different nuances to them. So you can really, I mean, I feel like if I were 
starting this big home campaign, I would sit down with my table with the toolkit and chat with everybody about what particular system would work best for the whole table. Yeah, and that's a that's a big thing. So when I first released this guide uh, about eight months ago, I noticed that people were using it as just like a, when people ask, oh, what safety tools are we using? They just kind of, here's the guide. But that's not really what it's meant for. It's not meant to be like, a, this is these are the tools we're using. It's meant to be a resource. Uh, the power of it is in giving people tools to put in their toolkit so they can find the right tool for their game, their group, even that that maybe that one particular session, they just end up being, you know, you don't use a hammer for everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the same, so it's the same way here. Uh, sometimes you need a hammer and sometimes you need a screwdriver and sometimes you need, you know, whatever else, a, a hot glue gun. But at the end of the day, they all function to do similar things, just different ones work for different circumstances. And so having the guide be this kind of resource for people to draw upon and um, use the right tool at the right time is really what it's meant for. I mean, it's not just about preventing negative experiences, but those first two uh, safety tools that you mentioned, uh, we actually use in the game that I play on the D&D channel, uh, Tales from the Mist, uh, the XNO cards and lines and veils. Um, and that is a gothic horror show. So a lot of really scary things happen, especially with our dungeon master, TK Johnson, who's so like the spookiest human ever. I mean, human in quotes. Yeah, um, TK's great. <laughs> yeah. And um, we're also, as a cast, we're extremely emotive and expressive. And I think that adds to the intensity of the show, but also just for us as players seeing each other react. But the only way we're able to do that is because behind the scenes, we're doing X and O. And mm-hmm. because it's a scary as heck show, but at the same time, we feel safe because we've talked about what our boundaries are. Uh, so we can like fully enjoy being terrified. Yeah. I, and that means a lot of people think about safety tools as a censoring thing, which I don't think it is because really what it is, is yes, it it may limit certain content or it may say, you know, what people boundaries are, but because you know what the boundaries are, you know what you can dive really deep into. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Especially for horror games, which is kind of timely with the conversations that have been happening. I I run several games of Bluebeard's Bride, which is a very deep horror game, very intimate horror game. And when people tell me boundaries, I respect them, but it means I can go really hard on stuff like body horror, like terrible things, like kind of mutilation and stuff like that, because I know that's not a boundary. I can just go full steam ahead with that. Yeah, except for the uh, eyeballs. Except for the eyeballs. I Yeah, that's just, <laughs> that's just my own personal thing. <laughs> uh, so at this point, I'd like to shift the conversation to the theme of this episode, although I could talk to you about safety tools all day. This is so interesting. But this episode is all about decolonizing Dungeons and Dragons, or you know what, tabletop RPGs in general. You and I cannot share something uh, in that we're both Asian Americans slash Canadians. And I don't think I've ever actually spoken to another person with an Asian ethnic background about what that means in terms of like their relationship with gaming. I know we've spoken a little bit about it on Twitter and uh, where I've struggled with trying to inc- integrate I don't know, like Eastern legends and folklore into my own D&D writing. Yeah, it's, I, we, we have spoke about this before, uh, kind of briefly, but it, I think we both have this idea. We're both diaspora. We're both people who have grown up in a Western society. And therefore, uh, whenever we try to engage with our heritage to bring into games, we often then start to question whether we're being racist right? about like, our I own heritage. If the struggle is so real, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's so interesting, right? Because it's like, it's this idea that we're trying to reclaim this part of our identity, uh, which is often ignored or not thought of. Uh, but in that process, we may be we may be perpetuating things. It's It's very weird. <laughs> Yeah, I wish there was just like a book that could just tell me like what the rules are. Because I think the last time we talked about it, it might have been, I was like up late writing and I did a tweet 
yeah. uh, about it to the interwebs. And then I got a bunch of advice from trying to figure out a nice way to say it. I got a bunch of advice from men that... I should just treat it like any other culture. All human cultures belong to everybody. So there's nothing special or different about this one. And that was such frustrating Mm -hmm. advice to get. But let's talk about what that uh, all of this means for you. What does decolonizing D&D mean? It's a lot of things. Um, At its core, D&D is a very colonialist game. And I don't mean that just in the act Uh, what we think of colonization as the act of colonization. Some group coming in and like taking over and implying their, their culture and forcing assimilation. Like that's, we, we think of when we, when most people think about decolonizing D and D, they think about removing that act. But I think a lot of it that most people don't think about is that colonization is not just the act, but it's also the long-term effects and the changes in ideology that happens. And then with any form of game writing, I'm of the firm belief that, you know, a person's ideology gets fully ingrained into an adventure or into a game because they're writing from their perspective. And when all of us come from the West, from a fairly colonialist uh, society and therefore, or the effects of colonialism, it gets put into our games. And so from its conception, D&D has been, has colonialism in it, or at least colonialist ideology and ideas. Can you give an example of something that people, like you said, might not realize comes from like a colonialist perspective? So colonialism, as we see, is a lot of a group coming in saying that our ideas and our culture is superior in some way. And we're going to apply that to this place and have that become the dominant thinking and the dominant culture. And that carries into a lot of adventures and a lot of just the structure of adventuring. Here we have a group of outsiders coming into a community in some way and say, we'll rescue you because you can't rescue yourselves. And we know the best way to do it. And our ideas of justice, of uh, good and evil, of whatever else, trumps yours because we're the ones who are executing it and doing it for you. Mm -hmm. So that's a colonial idea right there. The idea that an outside force knows better than the internal community and it coming in with their own ideology and kind of putting it, kind of shoving it in there, (laughs) kind of like uh, overriding the internal culture. So... Some people's reactions to discussions about decolonizing D&D are, well, this is so ingrained in what Dungeons and Dragons is. If you're not into that, then really you should just be playing another game or writing your own different game. What are your thoughts on that? So I think I think when people talk about decolonizing games, there's just always this idea that you'll be able to dismantle colonialism through games, which not really, because colonialism has existed for centuries at this point. It's not something that's going to be dismantled in a single game or a single adventure. And perhaps we won't be able to fully decolonize games, but that uh, decolonize D&D specifically. But I think there's value in challenging colonization and colonialism um, within D&D. I think there's a, there's a, a possibility for us to engage with the idea of colonialism and engage with the effects and how that applies to our gaming and to our characters and to our stories and see how we can push back against them. Although I think there's always going to be some aspect of D&D that is colonial. Again, the structure of adventures, right? is a pretty colonialist um, structure. But I think there's a really interesting way to challenge that. For example, having the adventurers come from the community that they're trying to protect. I I think Tales from the Mist does a pretty good job of this, where, from my understanding, a lot of the characters come from Ravenloft. Yeah, we're all from different domains, but we are Ravenloft natives. You're all all from Ravenloft. And so you're, you're coming from those communities to enact change versus, you know, being outsiders 
and then coming from an outside perspective and trying to force your perspective over others. There may be some differences between regions, but it's still, you know, you're kind of challenging that idea that adventurers have to be outside and colonizing <laughs> the other groups that they're trying to, quote unquote, save. So no, I, I think there is value in the work that's being done to try to decolonize D&D. I don't think it's going to be done in a single game. I don't think it's going to be done as a single series or adventure, but I think there's some very interesting things and stories that can be explored in D&D. And there's like plenty of interesting stuff about D&D as well that's not colonialist. And I think there's value in focusing on those parts of the of the game as well. Are there any other things that you change about uh, your fantasy or D&D or tabletop RPG worlds to sort of challenge colonialism? Any other things people can do for their games at home? I mean, a lot of it just comes down to questioning, why do I think violence is the, the first choice in most of these games? Having violence not as a choice is a fairly anti-colonialist move because uh, so much of colonialism has been ingrained into violence takeover, moving away from violence and moving into social and conversational ways of solving problems has been a big focus for me. Uh, but also just generally, like any colonial forces in my games are framed as not good. I recently uh, ran a game of, or ran a campaign of Lady Blackbird, which is a, a steampunk kind of game. And steampunk is very, has a lot of base, well, it's based in uh, Victoriana and that kind of colonialist ideal. And so I ended up kind of framing uh, the empire, uh, which is the, the big uh, ruling force, as villains. That's not to say there were not good people within the empire, but the empire as itself was very much framed to be not good. And so just actively thinking about this and challenging it within your design, within your stories is crucial. And I think finding people, marginalized people, and folks who have done studies on this and who have examined colonialism in their everyday lives and in their games is also incredibly important. Finding those people online and kind of seeing what they have to say. Because as, as we know, uh, even between us, who were both, you know, women of color and Asian American women of color, our experiences are different. And therefore, our perspectives are different. And so it's just a matter of taking in a bunch of perspectives and putting value to them and putting value to expanding your own viewpoints to challenge your assumptions. Because that's really what, what colonialism in our everyday lives is. It's this mindless assumptions that we have about the everyday world uh, baked into our viewpoints. And by expanding our viewpoints, by challenging them via listening and talking and engaging with other people and with other perspectives, we're able to kind of break away from assumptions and work towards more wholesome views of the world. Wow, challenging assumptions. I mean, if we're going to break down this really nuanced conversation to one thing, I think that's a, a really great thing to focus on. Ken, you speak so eloquently on a bunch <laughs> of really tough topics. Before we wrap up here, I wanted to check, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? No, I, I think that covered most of it. I mean, yeah, like you said, I think the main takeaway from that is challenge your assumptions. Look at things and ask why. Why is this happening? And does it have to be like this? Sometimes it does. Sometimes there are points where in your storytelling, you're like, yeah, I think it has to be like this. But looking at how to frame it so that you can engage with um, stuff outside of your own viewpoints and outside of your own perspectives really, really helps a lot to try to create better, more nuanced, more sensitive, and better stories in general. So Kiana, if people want to find you, join your conversations, find that safety toolkit, just anything uh, that you are working on, how can they do that? Yeah. Uh, so you can find me over on Twitter at Kiana S. Best way to figure out what I'm doing because I'm over the internet doing all, all sorts of tabletop role-playing stuff, whether that's streaming or writing or just yelling into the void. Thanks so much for coming on Behold Her.
Jessica Ross is an editor, writer, game master, and podcaster who you might know from D20 Dames, Bitches and Liches, and Bitch Team Alpha podcasts. She was also a fellow guest on the Decolonizing D&D Comic-Con panel. In this audio essay sponsored by Cobalt Press, Jess shares tips you can start using right away to decolonize your D&D games. First things first. Dungeons and Dragons has a long history of racism and colonialist ideas, and though Wizards of the Coast seems to be trying to move away from a lot of that, they still have a long way to go. This doesn't mean it's bad or wrong to enjoy D&D. As Anita Sarkeesian of Feminist Frequency has been telling us for years, it's okay to be critical of the media you love. I love D&D, and part of what I love about it is that we, as players and DMs, can address its more problematic aspects, even as we're playing. We don't have to accept these things as they are. We can make small improvements to make gameplay more enjoyable and welcoming for everyone. Decolonizing Dungeons & Dragons sounds like a huge task, and it absolutely is, but it can start with very small incremental changes. Some aspects or adventures would certainly take a lot more work to decolonize, looking at you, Tomb of Annihilation, but that doesn't mean it's not worth trying. I think it helps to first recognize the impacts colonialist ideas and histories are having on your adventures. And once you start recognizing some of the more problematic aspects of D&D, it makes it easy to keep going, to keep seeing those things, and to keep finding ways that you can improve the game. Racism is rampant in some of these settings. Entire races are classified as all good or all evil. Depictions of the Vistani based on stereotypes of the Romani peoples, Chult as a resource-rich continent drowning in profiteers and adventurers looking to plunder it. How much time is even spent in Tomb of Annihilation on the native Chultans? Or are the people of color there little more than set dressing in the first real adventure book that focuses on Black people in D&D 5e? These stories are not told by the marginalized groups they're meant to present, and that's obvious in the way these stories are treated. So what can we do as players and DMs? Well, it's important to keep in mind there's no real checklist or guide that anyone can follow to fix everything forever. This will be a constantly moving target, and it'll take lots of work. It's going to look a little bit different for every person, for every game, for every group, for every table. On top of all of that, I can really only speak from my own experiences. But these are things that have helped me think about how to decolonize my own gaming experiences. There are a few things I do differently when I'm playing versus when I'm DMing. When I'm playing, the first thing that I like to do is create an actual background for my character. Personally, I don't play as evil aligned characters and I prefer not to even DM for them, but I know some people love that. Unfortunately, my experience with evil aligned characters is that the entire background of them is usually, well, I'm playing an evil race. Well, but why is your character evil? This doesn't mean you can never choose a race the rulebooks have classified as evil for your evil character, but maybe give them an actual reason they're evil and a reason they're adventuring with your group despite being evil. Instead of just saying, well, most tieflings are evil, so my tiefling is too, why is your tiefling evil? What does that mean for your character? And why is your evil character still traveling with this group? How and why are they putting aside their evil tendencies to collaborate with this adventuring party? Every creature in the multiverse has a story to tell, even the monsters. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because it's the tagline from the Uncaged Anthology, which is an amazing collection of adventures that rewrite the history of some famous monsters. Remember that there's always another side to every story. Evil characters who see themselves as being right or good tend to be much more interesting than characters who are evil just for the sake of being evil. If your character's evil, what caused that? Were they raised that way and don't see it as evil? Did they become so entrenched in their quest for revenge that they lost sight of what's good in their life? Were they attacked by wolfers as a child, so now they attack every wolfer they see? If your character's gonna judge everyone they meet by their race, be honest about their racism and what caused it. It could become part of their story arc to recognize that issue within themselves and learn to grow and become a better person. It can also help to adjust the rules a little bit, maybe rewrite the backgrounds and histories of your character's race. For example, there's no reason for elves to be racist toward drow or for players to assume the worst of the monstrous races. Your githyanki doesn't need to immediately hate every githserai they encounter in their travels. These racist attitudes don't need to have a place at your table or in your character's background. Those are all relatively small places to start when just thinking about each individual character. There are some other things that DMs can think about when creating stories and working with the players at their table. You can create your own adventures and either tell stories from the perspective of marginalized voices or create a fantasy not explicitly based in colonialist and revisionist history and subvert the tropes and stereotypes we see so often in fantasy stories. There are so many interesting ideas that can be made into adventures. Why stick with the ones we see all the time that are problematic? 
Be respectful of other cultures when you're looking at adapting their stories for D&D and try to branch out into something you may not have known about otherwise. Also, players, be patient with your DMs when they're making these awesome adventures for you. I like to use elements of African-American folklore based on the stories my dad heard when he was growing up in the South. I haven't seen anything very similar in any of the tabletop RPGs I play, and it's fun to create this connection to my heritage and the stories I tell with my adventures. Also, try to help your players avoid prejudice in games. This is a huge ask, and it won't be possible for every DM to do, but it's something to try to do if you have the emotional capacity for it. One way to do this is to full-on ban every kind of hateful language. No racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, any kind of hateful language at your table, full stop. And that's a great way to do it. Just say those things aren't allowed, and then don't let them happen at your table. Something else you can try to do if you have the emotional capacity for it is to try to help your players grapple with these things. Maybe if you notice a lot of problematic ideas at the table, you could try introducing an NPC or bringing back an NPC the players already know and love and have them bring up questions and be a new voice at the table. If your players are murdering every goblin they see without question, maybe this NPC that they already know and respect can comment on how cruel it seems to assume the worst of every goblin, orc, and kobold. Is it really necessary to treat an entire race as evil? Because no, that's full on racist. Try introducing some NPCs from races of rules called evil and show that they are as varied and interesting as the players themselves. Again, these are just a few ideas for how to start small and making your table a more welcoming and inclusive place. Don't feel like you need to do all of these things at once. Maybe start by having a discussion about what colonialism looks like in your game and the ways that you as a group can identify these issues as they come up. Then you can talk about decolonizing the stories that you're telling at your table and see what positive changes you can make as a group. Find more from Jess at writejessr on Twitter or writejess.com. Thank you, Jess, Tristan, and Kiana for sharing your stories and knowledge with Behold Her. If you want to help Behold Her grow, consider giving us some stars or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in sponsoring the next audio story so we can compensate great content creators? Go to BeholdHerPodcast.com. The next episode of Behold Her is about women uncaged. The Dungeon Masters Guild's uncaged anthology turns female mythological tropes on their head. But just as the anthology has changed these stories of legend, it's also changed the lives of the creators behind it. Let's dive deep. See you next time.